As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, tow listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success, as sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. This is a conversation with the inimitable Avi Loeb. We talk about, well, I was struggling. What can I talk to Avi about? that he hasn't covered before because he's been on over 400 podcasts. He tends to give the same answers and be asked the same questions. It took quite some time, but along with the community, we managed to conceive of questions that he hasn't been asked, at least not in the public forum, such as what are his opinions on Bob Lazar, morality, purpose, a finality to the universe, the beginning of the universe, some technical questions about manifolds and the lower bound on the mass of elementary particles and astrophysical data, God, Quite a few topics. If you'd like to see more conversations like this or hear more conversations like this, then please consider supporting, donating, whatever you would like at patreon.com slash Literally every single one of the patrons helps a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous amount. Thank you so much for all the people who have continued to donate. And thank you for those of you who are going to. Just so you know, soon I'll be hosting a three-way conversation between myself Donald Hoffman, and Bernardo Castrop. It may be a four-way conversation if we can get Jonathan Verveke in as well, although I'm unsure if he's available. However, it's at least going to be Bernardo Castrop and Donald Hoffman. That's coming shortly. We're looking to hit 50 patrons, and then I'll be able to conduct that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, and enjoy the interview. I want to know, how much did writing your book, or writing books in general, or articles, how much does that clarify your thinking? 
Oh, um, the main purpose for writing the book, as I told the publisher, was uh, uh, to um, broadcast the excitement that we can have in science, uh, discovering important things that do affect our daily lives. And I told the publisher that if one person around the world will decide to become a scientist after reading my book, I will be satisfied. And as it turns out, uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, I got an email from uh, Malawi, from a woman who wrote, uh, the book is great, and uh, I'm thinking of becoming an astronomer. So I told her the story about uh, the publisher and I asked her, are you the one? Are you that person that will become a scientist uh, thanks to reading my book? And she said, maybe. So um, I invited her to apply to graduate school um, at Harvard in astronomy. And I very much hope that she will do so. And then I can work with her. Uh, there was another undergraduate student from uh, Columbia that uh, wrote to me and said, uh, reading about your work uh, changed my life. And so I get uh, about a dozen emails uh, of this type every day now. And uh, I am <laughs> really satisfied about writing my book. It wasn't so much uh, for me to clarify uh, my thinking as to communicate my excitement about doing science. And, you know, the fact that uh, we can maintain our childhood curiosity, we can be excited about doing it. It's not a job like uh, being in the business world, the commercial world, where you get paid and then you use the money for what you really enjoy. Uh, in fact, you know, I would enjoy doing what I'm doing irrespective of whether I get money for it. There were no problems that you had as ambiguous in your mind that when you started writing, then it helped you elaborate it or cultivate it or disambiguate it? If no, it was no, already no. somewhat formed in your mind, now you just got to put it on paper? Yeah, I mean, um, it's all uh, in my, my head to start with, and it's just a question of uh, putting it in a way that is compelling. And, um, you know, it's very much the same when I do my science. Very often someone comes to my office and says, this is what I'm working on. Sort of immediately I come up with uh, suggestions for ideas and how to proceed. And very often that person says, oh, wow, I, how did you come up with that? I, I didn't really think about it. And uh, it's not as if it takes me a great effort to do that. It's sort of in my head to start with, uh, and I'm just explaining it. Uh, and uh, there is not much distance between <laughs> putting it on paper and having it in my head. Uh, the only difference is this way many other people know about it. Okay, talking about communicating ideas to other scientists, I recall you saying that when you were in your younger years, you would speak about ideas and then they would get rebuffed, but then someone who's on the periphery listening in would then advance those ideas and maybe they would be advanced to the level of becoming new fields in physics or insights or, or inventions and so on. Can you give me some examples of that? Yeah, it happened several times. And, uh, you know, early on in my career, I, I looked for um, uh, affirmation for uh, other people um, to accept uh, an idea that I proposed before I would advocate for it. And uh, very often I was disappointed because uh, I, I'll give you an example. Um, 21 years ago, I um, thought that the um, you know, it would be interesting to, to see if there is a correlation between the mass of black holes at the centers of galaxies and the, the, the depth of the gravitational potential well that they're embedded in. So in other words, if black holes grow, they behave like kids, you know, they uh, eat as much food as they can uh, from the table until they become too energetic and then they throw off the, the food from the table. And, 
So if that's the case, then black holes would grow up to a certain mass, uh, at which point they release so much energy, they become so energetic that they clean off the food that uh, allows them to continue to grow. And um, so I suggested, let's check if uh, black hole masses are correlated with the depth of the gravitational potential well of the galaxy that hosts them. And the way to measure that is by the speed by which stars are moving within that galaxy uh, near the core of the galaxy. And uh, when I suggested that, people said, no, that's not interesting. It's, it's probably, there is nothing interesting in that relation. And uh, I remember mentioning it at the conference and it was completely rebuffed. And then we had a junior faculty search at the astronomy department. And as it happens in the shortlist, there were two people working exactly on, on the central black holes in galaxies. And I suggested to both of them independently to check that. And uh, since they were young uh, people, they decided to do that and they had all the data. In principle, I could have done it as well. Anyway, they did it and each of them got so excited a few months later, they said, wow, there is a very tight correlation between the black hole mass and the characteristic speed of stars in, in, in the galaxy that hosts it. Uh, and uh, then uh, they decided to publish and they published exactly the same time, the two teams. And uh, then they started fighting with each other for the credit because it became the, hot, the hottest thing in the field. And um, for, for a decade, it became the thing that everyone talks about. And that was the first indication. And then a couple of years later, I uh, uh, suggested to call, I, I had a sabbatical uh, at uh, Princeton and I suggested to a few people that were experts in uh, black holes and, and the infall of gas onto black holes. I suggested uh, perhaps we should calculate what happens when there is a hotspot, a region that is very bright, orbiting a black hole very closely so that you can perhaps map the space and time around the black hole this way. And they completely dismissed it and said, well, there would never be a hotspot that maintains its integrity. This is not worth doing. Uh, and so I came back to, to Harvard after the sabbatical and I suggested it to a postdoc of mine and we did the calculation. We wrote a few papers and then uh, just a, a year and a half ago, two years ago, a group in Germany uh, discovered exactly that phenomena. They uh, found a hotspot moving around the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, just in the way that we, that I envisioned. And uh, they, it, 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 the hotspot was orbiting very close to the black hole. And so once again, um, and then uh, I can give you many more examples. You know, I gave, for example, a lecture on gravitational wave astrophysics, which is a new way of doing astrophysics. Astrophysics traditionally, astronomy was based on light, collecting light, but uh, according to Einstein's theory of gravity, when you have massive objects like black holes that are very compact, they distort space and time around them, and when they move close to each other, they can send out waves, and these are called gravitational waves. And at the time, it was 2013, I thought it's an important subject for uh, the coming years, and I decided to give a lecture about it in a winter school for students. And then uh, 10 minutes into my talk, one of the other lecturers, uh, who, who was, by the way, still is uh, 20 years younger than me, so it has nothing to do with age, but he, he's very conservative. He stood up. How long ago was this? This was 2013, January. And uh, he stood up and uh, said, uh, why are you wasting the time of these graduate students on a subject that will clearly not be important during their lifetime uh, for their careers? 
Uh, and just two years he later, said this allowed in front of everyone. In front of it, yeah, that's on video. You can we can uh, find it. Uh, and you know, he was uh, much younger than I am, uh, working on uh, star formation and so forth. A conservative um, astronomer, so to speak, uh, but young, relatively young. And so, um, two years later, the LIGO collaboration announced uh, or discovered. Uh, the announcement came. Uh, six months later, but uh, uh, you know, in uh, uh, in August uh, 2015, it was discovered that there was an event, a gravitational wave event, discovered by LIGO, and that ushered a new era in astrophysics, where gravitational waves are being used to discover objects that otherwise do not emit any light, black holes that come together, uh, and uh, the Nobel Prize was awarded for that a few years ago, uh, and uh, clearly. You know, these, the same students that were in the audience uh, were still doing their PhDs where this discovery was made. And so saying, uh, why are you wasting the time of these students on a subject that will never be important was clearly invalid. Uh, and, uh, you know, it happened to me many times. And at some point, like five years ago, I said to myself, the hell with it. Uh, I, I, I don't need confirmation from other people. You know, it's just well, it makes, you know, it, it makes me depressed to, to listen to the criticism and then uh, realize that the, this is the, the, you know, the hottest thing in, in, in the field later on, a few years later. So how is that possible? Well, it is possible because uh, uh, people are not, uh, do not have the vision about the future and they, they're very, they, they prefer to dismiss uh, new, you know, new ideas, innovation and so forth, just because it takes them out of their comfort zone. They're used to doing business as usual. And, and so five years ago is, or so, I decided to basically not listen and just do what I think is right based on uh, my inner compass. And you can see that, that nowadays, you know, um, as a young uh, scientist, I would never be able to sustain the pressure, the, the social pressure that exists around me right now. But um, I'm sort of immune to it by now. What social pressure exists around you right now? What are you referring to? <laughs> also, why did it take you? I don't know how old you are, but I'm, why did I'm it take 59. you? Fifty-nine. Uh, okay, so yeah, it, it took me more than fifty-four. Yeah. Why did it take you until you're fifty-four? I imagine that if this occurred to you when you were in your late twenties, maybe three times, then by the time you're thirty-three or thirty-five, you would say, "Okay, to heck with it. Forget what other people think." <laughs> well, maybe I'm a slow learner. Maybe I'm also, um, you know, I do care about what people. Think. I did care about what people think early on. And you, you have to understand the entire um, structure of academia uh, relies on other people evaluating your, you throughout uh, the various uh, stages. Uh, in order to get tenure, you need a tenure committee to recommend, and that is based on letters that are obtained from the community at large. So you need to dance to the music of a lot of people in order to be sort of tenured. Um, uh, and then uh, the same is true about getting grants. Grant support is, uh, you know, the, the selection committee committees are often populated by people that are mainstream and they have their own agenda and uh, they don't uh, welcome innovation as much. Uh, and um, to me, it's still a miracle that the LIGO experiment was funded in the first place. I was told by uh, important people at the National Science Foundation that uh, nowadays, uh, at present time, uh, the likelihood of it being funded would have been very small. It was the vision of a few people um, a couple of decades ago that pushed it through. Um, it's really hard to imagine that nowadays uh, the National Science Foundation or other federal agencies would 
receive an advice from the scientific community to embark on a risky project of this type. Um, it was not at all clear that it will reach the sensitivity necessary. And so, you know, you are, you are dependent throughout your career on many people uh, that will approve uh, your, your agenda. And uh, as a result, you develop the mentality of um, listening and, and paying attention and not, not deviating too much from the beaten path. And um, that, that is quite common. What is not common is someone like me that uh, reaches uh, leadership positions. You know, I, I've been chair of the astronomy department at Harvard for nine years, and I've chaired many important committees. Someone at that level often, uh, you know, behaves uh, uh, even more uh, as a conformist uh, because uh, because of political considerations. Um, you have to understand, it's just like uh, looking at um, seashells on the beach. You know, when, when a seashell first arrives at the beach, uh, it looks special and unique. It has special color, special shape. But as time goes on, you know, the waves uh, rub uh, seashells against each other. And then they start to lose their identity and they start to look like each other. And eventually you end up with sea sand basically pieces of seashells that are indistinguishable from each other. And that's what happens in academia. Uh, you know, each, uh, indi each individual researcher starts different, but then uh, you rub against many others and you end up being indistinguishable from them. Mm, okay, when I hear that, here's what I'm thinking. There's this, it's not a quote, but it's a story from Steve Jobs and he said, Almost the opposite. So there, it's obviously a happy middle. He said, what you want to do is take people who are like rocks that are unpolished and then put them into a rock tumbler because afterward they come out like diamonds. So you want to take intelligent, smart people and have them argue. I can see this. Well, as long as the argument is accepted, you know, as long as it's a lot. So if you create an environment where uh, people are encouraged to challenge each other, to come up with uh, original ideas, to be different, then uh, that is, uh, I completely agree that that experience of uh, argument and exchanges uh, is helpful. But, but if on the other hand, uh, you create an environment where, you know, the dominant view, where there is a, a group thing, where the, uh, the, the folklore of, of, of a field uh, dominates and anyone that suggests something different is pushed aside, that is bad. And that's what I was referring to. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So if it's geared toward constructing and also if it's geared toward some goal. Yeah, if, if you look, for example, if you look, for example, uh, I mean, the ideal example is the corridor of Bell Labs. You know, Bell Labs was established um, by a corporation uh, that uh, has a profit in mind. But um, in that corridor, they put very creative people. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of them ended up winning the Nobel Prize. There were lots of inventions that came out of the corridor of Bell Labs. And so putting a lot of um, creative people in the same environment and allowing them uh, to innovate and giving them an incentive to innovate, that is the right, best. Right, right, and, right. And so right. I, in that sense, I would agree with Jobs that, uh, you know, putting them next to each other is beneficial. But if, you, on the other hand, <laughs> you put people together and exert pressure so that, you know, they do not deviate from what everyone else is thinking, that's bad. Uh -huh. So right now the incentives are geared towards self-preservation or idea preservation. Yeah. And what can be done to fix this? One of the questions that I had from the audience was, let's imagine there are some wacky ideas. Obviously, you don't want to let in just any idea. There is something 
to be said about being too fringe. But then there is something to be said about having permeable walls. Right. So how do you fix this system, quote unquote? Well, very, very, very easily. Um, you basically evaluate each idea on its merit. Um, so um, the, the, the point is you are not evaluating the person that mentioned the idea. You, you, you're not uh, uh, using uh, you know, uh, the, the personal traits as a, a way of dismissing an idea. Uh, which is very often done. Very often the attacks are personal. If you, if you see in politics, it's very common. In science, it should not be the case. In science, we should argue about the ideas. About, and if an idea doesn't make sense, you can easily prove that. Um, <clears throat> so let me give you a counter, you know, like an example that comes from the opposite side. So, um, for example, with respect to Oumuamua, um, I suggested that it may be of artificial origin as a possibility, and that was that encountered a lot of opposition. Now, the latest uh, alternative to that was that maybe it, so maybe it is a nitrogen iceberg. That was a suggestion. And uh, for, you can find nitrogen, pure nitrogen, as you need in this case, uh, in order to explain the fact we haven't seen a cometary tail around Oumuamua and also that it's flat and that it's, it was pushed from the, away from the sun. All of these facts will come into, uh, we, we could be explained if it was made of pure nitrogen. And pure nitrogen, for example, exists on the surface of Pluto. So the suggestion was, let's imagine a lot of Plutos around other stars and you chip off their surface with a high efficiency, more than 10%. Uh, of all the Plutos are being chipped off. The, and then you send out these rocks and one of them is Oumuamua. And uh, okay, I said, uh, fine. Um, and then uh, I wrote uh, a paper just uh, a week and a half ago saying, well, if you imagine that to be the case and it, you end up needing more uh, mass than you have in stars in the Milky Way galaxy by a factor of 100, actually, it turns out. Uh, and so uh, it's what just- What do you mean that, by that? Sorry, what do you mean by that? And are, are you referring okay. to the work by Desk and Jackson, I believe? Desk and Jackson, yes, exactly. Um, and the, the reason for that is, you know, the, the layer of uh, pure nitrogen on the surface of Pluto is relatively thin. Uh, so it, it just makes a few percent of the mass of, of Pluto. And most, of, most of the mass is, uh, you know, in, 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 in rock and, and water, ice and so forth. Um, so um, you lose by that. Um, and then, so for every bit of nitrogen that you produce, you need much more rock and, and water ice to exist. And then on top of that, you need hydrogen and helium that are much more abundant than rock. So if you do that, just the mass budget, how much mass do you need to process in order to make enough objects so that you would see one of them as Oumuamua? And we know that you need to produce a certain, you know, uh, number of such objects per unit volume so that we would see one of them coming within a few years of the time that we were observing the sky, you know, with pan stars. So basically, if you just go through the math, which is really simple, straightforward, and also they require that it would, uh, you know, it, it, this object would be just half a billion years old because otherwise it would, would get a completely evaporated. So if you put all of these considerations together, you find that you need a hundred times more mass than you have available in stars. So even if you take all the mass in stars, multiply by a hundred, only then you will have enough surface layers of exoplutos or, or Pluto-like 
planets around other stars to make enough objects like Oumuamua so that you would see one of them during uh, that uh, mode of observations. And uh, so to me, it makes this scenario very unlikely. So I just mentioned that, you know, as an example of how a scientific debate should, should go. Uh, someone proposes an idea and then you discuss the idea on its merit and you know if the if you do a calculation that shows that something is problematic with that you know that that is a, a reason for concern and for working on something else so that is a scientific debate on the other hand if someone goes to twitter and says something negative about a paper and just doesn't even read it or or says something negative about a person without referring to the details of the idea or says something negative about the reference list of a paper rather than the content of the paper. You know, that, that is not a viable scientific discussion. So my point is we can uh, maintain a high level of integrity in the scientific uh, process if we just refer to the ideas rather than attack people personally. And that's the way we should proceed. And, you know, most of the time in science, you have to understand, most of the time things are uncertain. We just don't have enough evidence. And therefore we should contemplate possibilities. And that's legitimate. That's part of the scientific process. You can't skip that step. You can't say, I know the answer and I don't want to dismiss other possibilities, even though there is not enough evidence for your answer to be right. Um, so um, I think it's good to have uh, ideas on the table that are viable scientifically because then we are explore, exploring all possibilities and by the way imagination is extremely important because we can't just always restrict our attention to things that we know from the past we will never discover new things that way what's jackson's and dash's response to this i don't know haven't uh, I, I all i've seen are personal attacks uh, not necessarily from them but from other people Mm -hmm. And is that the social pressure that you were referring to before that previously, let's say five years younger, you wouldn't have been able to withstand? That's a low level, you know, the, what you find on, on, on social media, which I, you know, I don't have any account on social media, so I'm less exposed to that. But and I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, I, I decided not to have any account uh, when I married my wife. She asked me not to do that. And so I uh, agreed not to do that. And, I'm, and that was more than 20 years ago. And I'm very glad that I, I don't have an account on social media because um, then I can think creatively and not be affected. I mean, of course, I'm losing on some uh, bits of information that are uh, floating around on social media, but I benefit much more by not listening to uh, you know, low-level discussions. I'm, I'm keeping my eyes on the ball, so to speak, not on the audience. Uh, and uh, so, um, so that's one kind of pressure that you find um, on social media, but um, I'm sort of resilient to that because I, I don't monitor it. Uh, but then the, the, there are, of course, um, you know, the, there are other ways that people exert pressure through students and postdocs. You know, they are much more vulnerable. They, they don't have uh, secure positions. So... Uh, if you create an atmosphere where, where some ideas are ridiculed, then postdocs and students are simply afraid of pursuing them uh, be because of their future careers. You know, and I got a lot of emails from people saying, you know, I completely agree with you, uh, but I cannot express myself because I worry about my job prospects. And, and that comes from people that are relative, not necessarily at the lowest level of academia, even people that are, you know, have secure positions are worried about that. 
and um, you know this this is unhealthy um, because we want uh, an open discussion uh, and uh, a scientific discussion, a discussion based on content, not on on the way things look like or on personal attacks. Why is it you think aliens are considered to be unconventional or so unconventional that they don't merit an academic response or an academic investigation? Well, there are several aspects. First of all, as we discussed before, um, many ideas are ridiculed for no good reason, even in the context of black holes or gravitational waves, as, as I mentioned to you. Uh, I remember when I started the, as a postdoc, um, the idea of inflation, cosmic inflation, was ridiculed in some circles of uh, astronomy. So that happens all the time, except in the and, and of course the the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, you know, started 70 years ago. So it has a long history. In the early days, it wasn't ridiculed as much, but um, but every now and then, uh, you know, there, there was a very negative response of the community. And, uh, since '93, there is no significant federal funding for this uh, subject, and as a result, it was pushed aside. Now, the strange thing is that, um, uh, for example, in in particle physics, uh, there was the superconducting supercollider, a very big experimental project that, uh, uh, at some point, you know, fun uh, the funding for it stopped, and and then what happened in theoretical physics is that that there was a whole culture that developed after that that uh, is divorced from uh, feedback from experiments and it uh, th this culture of theoretical physics became string theory and the discussions of the multiverse and and the um, extra dimensions and so forth ideas that have no evidence to support them uh, so on the one hand you have a situation where the mainstream in theoretical physics discusses concepts that have no foundation in, in experimental data uh, and that is accepted and uh, you know there, there are big communities of people working on these ideas with and, and they are not even interested in testing the idea so, so most of the papers are about mathematical details not about how to test one idea versus another and if you suggest a test they shy away from it and try to sort of raise enough dust so that you wouldn't be able to, to rule out the theory. Um, and so um, that's one culture. And at the same time, you have in astronomy a culture that uh, also as a result of not funding a research area uh, mm, is uh, completely negative about something that is down to earth, so to speak. We have it on earth. It's intelligent mm. life, technological life. Mm. So, and we now, the one thing that we know now that wasn't true 20 years ago is uh, we now know that uh, half of or a big fraction of all the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. And so the Earth-Sun system is not unusual. And as a result, if you arrange for similar circumstances, you might as well get similar outcomes. And the, rather than argue about whether it's likely or not likely, whether we are unique, special, or whether we are very common, as common as ants are on a sidewalk, rather than argue about that, and by the way, I believe in the latter option, as you know, uh, we should just search. And of course, we will never find the truth if we don't search. And the strange thing is the current situation is there is very little funding, a thousand times less funding for the search for technological signatures than there is for the search for dark matter. And frankly, the nature of dark matter will have zero impact on our daily lives. 
If Oumuamua was a technological relic, or if we find other technological relics in space, that would have a huge impact on society. And society, the public, is very interested in this subject and it funds science. So I find the current situation unacceptable. It would have an impact on society in the sense of how we view ourselves? Yeah, there are many different uh, aspects. Uh, how we view our place um, in the universe, you know, and uh, our aspirations for space. Uh, if there are others out there, if, the, if there is a smarter kid on the block. And by the way, most stars formed billions of years before the sun. And therefore, they may have had civilizations like us billions of years before us. So we are arriving relatively late to the game. You know, the way I see it is, you know, we are born into this world uh, just like actors that are put on a stage without a script. We don't know what the play is about. So the first thing to check is whether there are other actors out there. Perhaps they know what's going on because they have been around for a while. So that's what like searching for another kid on the block, finding whether there are smarter kids on, you know, most likely there were civilizations that died by now. But we can find relics, uh, technological relics they sent out to space, just like we send Voyager 1, Voyager 2, New Horizons and so forth. So it's a very natural, to me again, it's a common sense to invest in the search for such things. I call it space archaeology. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. You know, monitoring, for example, with a camera, every object that comes into the solar system from outside the, that gets close to Earth and and checking it, you know, checking whether it's artificial or natural by a close-up photograph. Because a picture is worth a thousand words. And in my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. So I think it's very natural to do this search and invest at least the same amount of money we invest in the search for dark matter, which is also a search in the dark. You know, we don't know what the dark matter is. Why not invest hundreds of millions of dollars or even a billion dollars that's what we invested in in LIGO to me it sounds like a straightforward thing to do a very commonsensical thing to do but uh, somehow my view is not dominant uh, this not only that but the discussion is being ridiculed 
And moreover, the community doesn't like me saying that, uh, even though that's the reality of the situation. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars Rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Hmm. When I hear that, what I'm wondering is, is there a way to monetize the search for aliens? Because then you can get the private industry. Well, the private sector, definitely, definitely. And then number two, what do you think about Elon Musk's mission to Mars? Okay, so those are two questions. Privatizing the search for aliens and then... Uh-huh. Definitely. I think um, if uh, there are individuals interested in the search, I have some good ideas about how to do space archaeology, how to examine interstellar objects that enter the solar system and come close to Earth and take a photograph of them. And, you know, that that could be a, a new frontier in, in astronomy that uh, was never pursued. And it, it's um, simply because uh, just a, a few years ago, we discovered the first interstellar object, Muamua. So right now, you know, we have our eyes open. It's a, it's a wake-up call for us. And uh, I would be glad to discuss with a, a wealthy individuals uh, what can be done to, to advance this frontier. I think it would be a very exciting frontier, even more exciting than gravitation wave astrophysics uh, or the search for dark matter. And um, it could be, you know, it, it could be the most important uh, discovery that humanity ever made if we find conclusive evidence uh, for, for uh, alien technology floating in space. So uh, given that, I think we should definitely pursue it uh, with the private sector because that is completely independent and is known for its innovation, you know, because... Right. Uh, uh, there are very wealthy individuals that uh, became wealthy as a result of uh, taking risks and uh, innov- innovating in the technological sector. So I think it would be um, uh, fantastic to open up new scientific frontiers uh, that they they can pursue with their wealth. Um, the second question um, uh, about going to Mars, I think one aspect of that that was not explored enough and should should be explored before we go on that ship that brings us to Mars is um, the health concern. You know, they, if um, down here on Earth, we are protected by the Earth's magnetic field from uh, very energetic particles, cosmic rays, uh, and by the atmosphere of the Earth. Uh, and uh, 
the environment of the space station uh, floating, just hovering above Earth is also relatively protected. But if you go to Mars and you spend a year, uh, actually a significant fraction of uh, your brain cells uh, can be damaged uh, as a result of energetic particles uh, going through the helmet. I mean, you, can't, you, you have to uh, be in a cave underground or to have some special uh, shielding around you to be protected. And there was not enough uh, attention given to that. And I think that should be addressed uh, because we don't want um, it to be a one-way trip where after a year, everyone that goes there dies. So there's too much of a focus on building the atmosphere, not much of the lack of a magnetic... Well, uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, one thing is, of course, to create a habitat that allows people to breathe. And you don't need to build a, a, a whole atmosphere to terraform Mars. You can just do it inside a closed vessel, you know. And, and uh, But at the same time, worrying about um, how to protect humans so that they can live there for more than a year is, I think, a major challenge that was not addressed enough. And uh, of course, you can do it in steps. You can go first to the moon. And then, because the moon is closer to us and we can ship people back and forth more easily. Uh, and that could be a stepping stone to Mars. What do you think of Sean Carroll's many worlds? Well, it's not his many worlds interpretation, but he seems to think it's the only game in town with regard to quantum mechanical interpretations. And he seems to think it's not as arbitrary as people say, and that maybe there's some evidence for it, at least if you quote unquote follow the math. So what do you make of that argument? Um, well, so quantum mechanics was discovered uh, experimentally, and uh, that's an important uh, lesson for us uh, to maintain our humility as scientists. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, we need the experiments to, to, to give us an insight about nature that we haven't expected. And uh, it takes us out of our comfort zone. And it took Albert Einstein out of his comfort zone because he thought that you can't have quantum mechanics with uh, spooky action at a distance. It makes no sense to him. Uh, and so he wrote a paper about it, uh, the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paper, trying to propose an experiment that will demonstrate that spooky action at, at a distance does not exist. And uh, versions of that experiment were done and he was proven wrong. And uh, indeed, we are a century later, after quantum mechanics was discovered, still uh, feeling uneasy about how to interpret it. Um, and uh, this is an excellent example for why we need experiments, because uh, very often uh, experiments open us our eyes to uh, facts that we, you know, we haven't anticipated, that our imagination is limited, uh, more limited than nature's imagination in a way. And we, we should, uh, science is basically um, just being a student for life. Uh, as a scientist, you, are, you have to be humble and modest enough to admit that, you know, that perhaps nature uh, is different than, than your preconceptions. And if you were to say, I don't need verification, I know the truth in advance, uh, I know that there are extra dimensions, or I know that Oumuamua was a, a rock, or I know that this and that, without even checking, then you are just like the philosophers during the days of Galileo that didn't want to look through his telescope because they knew that the sun moves around the earth. So just, I just wanted to, to make that point that uh, quantum mechanics is really a, 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 an excellent example for why a scientist 
we should uh, always regard ourselves as uh, students of nature. Uh, but coming back to, so, uh, to the question of what's the meaning of quantum mechanics, uh, as you mentioned, that the, there was the many world interpretation, and uh, Sean Carroll puts it in a modern context. Um, um, and uh, uh, obviously, does Sean Carroll add anything that hasn't been said before on the many worlds interpretation from Everett? Um, yeah, I mean, there are some new nuances uh, now um, that relate uh, to how to to define the wave function and the ex possible existence of the multiverse that some people uh, contemplate as, you know, that the actual reality is much uh, bigger than what we can uh, experiment with within the observable universe that we see. Um, but um, I would say that the verdict is still out. I mean, um, every year or two, I read uh, an interesting essay that uh, offers new insights to quantum mechanics, the interpretation of quantum mechanics, but we are not there yet. We, we, we haven't converged on something that everyone agrees on. And again, I think the way to converge would be to be guided by experiments. And, and it's quite possible, you know, that the one thing we are missing is the connection with gravity. That we don't have a quantum theory of gravity that was tested experimentally. And perhaps in the context of such a theory, the the concerns we have will, will go away because one thing that uh, you recognize in quantum mechanics, at least the traditional way it was formulated in, is that time plays a special role relative to space. And um, whereas in, in, in the general theory of relativity, time and space are just dimensions of space-time and they can be curved by objects and so forth. And so perhaps once we uh, identify a winning theory that unifies quantum mechanics and gravity. Many of the uh, ambiguities that we have right now in physics, and by the way, there are many, not just not just the interpretation of quantum mechanics. There, there is the information paradox in the context of black holes. Um, we don't know <coughs> what happens to information that falls into a black hole. Um, Stephen Hawking uh, demonstrated that black holes evaporate eventually into thermal radiation that doesn't carry that information. So the question is, if the black hole goes away, where, where, are all the, where is all the information that we threw into it when we made it? Uh, and that's a fundamental question because quantum mechanics argues that information cannot be destroyed. And so this is one puzzle that is also un unsolved in modern physics. Then there is a question of what uh, happens at the singularities of either the singularity of a black hole where the curvature of space and time diverges or the singularity of the Big Bang, what happened before the Big Bang. Do you believe that there are singularities within No, no it's, it's clear that singularities are just uh, appearing in Einstein's theory of gravity because it doesn't, it's not unified with quantum mechanics. Uh, because once you get to very large curvatures of space and time, you have to correct the equations that Einstein wrote uh, because quantum mechanics comes into play. Uh, so again, the, the singularities are just symptoms of us having an incomplete theory. And what we need is to unify quantum mechanics with uh, the general theory of relativity of Einstein. And of course, string theory is a, a very popular contender, but when you ask string theorists, can you tell me what, what happens at the singularity of a black hole? They say, oh, that's a too difficult question. We can't really address it at this point. When you ask them what happens 
uh, at the Big Bang, just before the Big Bang, they say, oh, that's too difficult, we can't really, and then there are people that try to formulate some guesses as to how string theory would behave. But, um, so first of all, there is not a unique answer from string theory right now, and the theory is not unique in its predictions. And second, uh, on the issues that matter, it doesn't put any skin in the game. It doesn't say here is a prediction that you can test experimentally and if, it, if you find one answer then string theory is right, if you find another answer then it's wrong. No, they prefer not to put skin in the game so that it will still be right forever. And yeah. um, there is even the claim that if by some philosophers that if physicists agree on something for a decade it must be right. And I find that uh, really embarrassing that people argue that. Uh, Which philosophers? But, Oh, there is a, there is Hegel? A, David. No, um, the, uh, there is a philosopher with uh, that that wrote a book about string theory and suggesting that you know we should ad adjust our conception of what physics is supposed to mean that uh, experiments may not be needed and that in fact uh, physics is what physicists do and uh, once again from my perspective I hold exactly the opposite view I think that you know, nature educates us. We are just students of nature. So we should be modest and learn from experiments. We can't imagine that we will know the truth in advance. You know, it, to me, it sounds like hallucinations. Like you, you are high on drugs. If you believe that you can, that reality always reflects what you think it is. Uh, that's what people that are, you know, that hallucinate think. Uh, but you can think that you are the, the wealthiest person in the world. And when you go to the bank and uh, check how much money you have in your checking account, uh, you realize that, you know, that's an experiment and you realize that you cannot cash it. Uh, so, I mean, of course, people can feel happy. I have nothing against that. They can do mathematical gymnastics and feel happy. I just have the objection I have is about that applying to reality. A reality check needs to happen at some point. Right, exactly. Otherwise, I mean, you can just uh, celebrate something that is not real. Okay, let's talk about Bob Lazar. I sent you an email and I asked you if you had the time to please watch this video. It was a technical explanation of Bob Lazar in his younger years. Did you have a chance to even skim it? Yeah, I skimmed it. And um, I, what I found on, on, on the web is that um, he, he made a lot of statements without showing any evidence. And, you know, here I give usually the example of Napoleon. Um, you know, there were many people over the years that claimed that they are Napoleon. And um, how do you check that? Once again, experimentally, you ask them, show me your ID. And if they can't show you the ID that says that they are Napoleon, and if they keep insisting that they are Napoleon without showing you evidence for that, you know, there are, there are places where you can put them. And uh, my point is evidence is the key. That's the way that uh, science gets credibility that, that that's the way for us to make progress, as I discussed before, for us to learn new things through experiments, through evidence. And it's, it's not just a nuance. Uh, looking for evidence is not just something that you can give up on. It's a necessity. That's the only thing that will keep you sane and making relevant statements. And you can make a lot of statements that look bizarre, interesting, intriguing, emotionally appealing. Uh, you know, you can make a lot of statements like that. Uh, and in fact, our culture is full of that. 
you have all kinds of myths in our culture. You know, if uh, you can think about lots of them, I mean, Santa Claus. I mean, there are lots of myths that are accepted uh, and, and they're part of our culture, but they're not regarded as part You're of- You're crushing Santa. me right now. I thought Santa Claus is real. <laughs> oh man. Summarize, my point is uh, when I checked a lot of the things he said, he didn't bring um, uh, credible evidence to support them. And that's what uh, makes me worry that, you know, and, that, that he, he, he's not real. Ah, ah, I see, I see. Did you take a look at any of his explanations as to how the spacecraft would work? And is it feasible in your mind? Is it untenable? Is it no, ridiculous? I, no, I mean, once again, suppose he had a good idea for making a spacecraft that we currently do not, do not have, okay? That NASA is not developing. He could have made a fortune out of it. How? Very simply, instead of talking about it, he could have built it and then it would fly. What's the problem? I mean, that's a straightforward. <laughs> I don't understand why we need to talk about it even. I mean, any reasonable person that has an idea that is not being used and that could make uh, millions or even billions of dollars, you know, first of all, establishes a patent on that. And secondly, you know, tries to build this thing. And if it's real, he will make that profit. You know, it will be bigger than Tesla. It would be bigger than SpaceX because you would find a technology that NASA can use that uh, nobody thought about. So, you know, it makes zero sense to say, I know how to do something and not reveal the details and not build it. If you know how to do it, just build it. That's what I tell kids when they come to me with ideas. Okay, I believe what he was saying is that he doesn't know how it works. What happened was he was told to work on some craft and he believes they're of alien or extraterrestrial origin and that the US government knows how to pilot them to some degree in the same way that you can learn how to use a phone or a tablet, like they've dropped phones and tribes and they know how to turn it on, but they don't know how it works. And he said, possibly the way that it works is with this element called element 115. And there's a strong nuclear force, which turns into a gravitational force. Now that I find interesting. I don't know how it works, but to me, if that's true, that's, that's one way of unifying <laughs> quantum field theory with gravity. Either way, well, so let, let what do you think about that? that? Uh, from the point of view of a physicist, this is just nonsense. I mean, it makes right. no sense. I, I've never heard about how you turn uh, the nuclear force into a gravitational force uh, in any piece of equipment. Uh, of course, if you reach the Planck scale, you might be able to do something, but you know, no accelerator gets even close. Uh, the only time when we reached that scale perhaps was at the Big Bang uh, or near a singularity of a black hole. But so I, I would say th this is just non, I mean, it makes no scientific sense to me. And uh, uh, moreover, let's imagine that he did not know the details, but someone else has that equipment. Why do you think that someone else will keep it secret? Why wouldn't they just use it or develop it and, and you know, get a, a great advantage relative to others by using it. I was listening to one of your, actually, I believe you said this plenty of times that someone said to you, deflation is not disprovable. I mean, sorry, inflation is not disprovable. Yeah. Okay. Do you mind explaining why? Okay. So here is the thing that um, cosmic inflation is a theory that was proposed um, about um, 40 years ago. Uh, and 
it was meant to explain some very peculiar facts about the universe. Uh, one of which, let me just mention, because it's really simple to, to follow. Uh, when we look in one direction uh, in the, on the sky, we find the cosmic microwave background relic from the Big Bang with some temperature, okay? Then we look at the opposite direction on the sky and we find the cosmic microwave background having exactly the same temperature. Now, how is that possible? It took the age of the universe for the, uh, this light to arrive to us from these two points on the sky. And these two points on the, on the sky did not have time to communicate with each other because it would take twice as long at least, or more than that, for the light to arrive from one point to, another, to the other. So how come the universe was arranged in a way such that conditions are the same or throughout the entire sky in terms of the cosmic microwave background temperature, for example. So we know the universe had similar initial conditions uh, to one part in 100,000 uh, throughout the region that we can see. Meaning that in one part in 100,000, it's the same temperature or what? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, and how, how come it was prepared in, in such a state, which is very s special? You know, if you, had, if you would imagine a, a, just a random state, you would have very different temperatures in different places. You know? um, so inflation attempts to explain that. The idea is that uh, everything that we see came from a very small patch that was stretched exponentially in time, very quickly. Uh, so points that were in contact with each other were separated uh, very fast faster mm -hmm. than light from each other. And that is possible based on Einstein's theory of gravity. You can separate points exponentially away from each other if the vacuum itself dominates gravity, which by the way is what is happening right now in the universe. The expansion of the universe is accelerating. As of recently, over the past half uh, of the history of the universe, the, the expansion is speeding up rather than slowing down. And the idea is that the same thing happened at a very early time. Uh, and then that took a small region of space that where points were connected to each other, had the same conditions and spread them apart. Sorry, just, I wanna make sure I'm understanding. Is this just a change of the metric with the cosmological constant? And so, there, so inflation is just saying the cosmological constant was large in the early universe and then somehow yes, became exactly. smaller and or then, positive. Yeah, exactly. And you, the cosmological constant is equivalent to the vacuum having some uh, mass density, some energy density, which by the way, today is called dark energy. I mean, it's basically the energy of the vacuum. Uh, so by the vacuum, I mean, if you clean up all the matter, whatever you have left is the vacuum. And the vacuum could have a uniform energy density, the same energy density everywhere, uh, because it's the vacuum, it's the ground state. Mm -hmm. So um, if you just imagine at the early cosmic time, the vacuum had a large energy density and that went away. It was sort of a false vacuum. The vacuum was excited to some higher state. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it decayed into the vacuum we have today. Then that will create an exponential expansion that is called a cosmic inflation early mm -hmm. on and would explain some facts about the universe. It could also generate, it will make the universe have the same conditions everywhere, but it also through quantum mechanics generates small uh, ripples in uh, the, the density of matter. 1% uh, ripples? 
uh, yeah, small fluctuations, uh, small, small fluctuations because of quantum mechanics uh, that later grow and become the galaxies that we see today or the objects that we see today. So, so that's, that's the nice, the beauty of the concept of cosmic inflation that it explains a lot of things. And that's why it was widely accepted after, after a while in the scientific community. Uh, ah, ah, sorry, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So is the way that they put a bound on the time that the cosmological constant was extremely high? Is it with by observing the cosmic background radiation and saying, okay, there's a 1% difference about one in 100, you said, right? No, one in 100,000. Yes. Okay, one in 100,000. So then that means that there's a, a bound as to how long that could Go on for because otherwise the fluctuations would be so large that we would see larger gaps. I mean, oh, sorry, no, larger variations. No, or? no, so that there is a there is a lower limit on how long it persisted, which is you need to inflate enough so that the small patch would become as big as the universe today. Okay, that's uh, that's the yes, minimum yes, that yes, you yes, need yes, to expand yes, by. But right. it could have expanded much more than that. We just don't know. So inflation could have lasted much more, you know, we, we have no upper limit on how long it lasted, but we have a lower limit. Huh. Uh, and, and we know that it should have ended so that we will end up with universe full of matter that made every, all the objects we see now. So the vacuum could not have con continued to dominate the expansion forever because then we wouldn't exist. So the vacuum dominated for a while and that while lasted at least 60 uh, periods of exponential expansion, at least 60. And then after that, it, you know, we don't know how, how much more, but eventually it decayed and became the matter that we have today. And, and the universe entered into its expansion the way we see it. Um, so and anyway- unfalsifiable so, because. Okay, no. So that idea as it was formulated initially was a very interesting idea because you can test it. There are various predictions. Uh, one of them is that uh, the geometry of the universe would be flat uh, and, and, uh, and so forth. And, and uh, by the way, it was confirmed that the, the universe is flat. It, you know, if you draw a triangle, the sum of the angles is 180 degrees and so forth. But um, at some point, uh, it became clear that to account for inflation, you actually come up with uh, a, 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 the multiverse. Uh, you, you, there are lots of other regions in, inside of which conditions could be very different. So anything that is possible happens an infinite number of times in such a theory of cosmic inflation. So once you allow for not just our reality to exist, but you have all kinds of regions where things, everything that can happen happens an infinite number of times, then it starts losing its predictability because anything that you find about our universe could you could, it's a very flexible theory now that can explain anything. And so I had a panel discussion with Alan Guth that is one of the pioneers of inflation and in which I asked him a simple question. I said, and, and that was about five years ago, I asked him, is inflation falsifiable? Is there an experiment by which you will detect something about the cosmic micro background or about the universe uh, that will demonstrate that inflation is wrong? Can you envision something? I'm not saying necessarily that it's wrong. I'm just saying, is there a way to test it? Skin and in the game, as you would call it. Yeah. And he said, that's a silly question. He said, uh, any observational fact 
uh, in the universe can be a if inflation right now as a theory is sufficiently flexible that it can hear that sound that's the sweet sound of success with shopify shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets shopify supports you at every point of sale both online and in person They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Explain can accommodate any fact that you detect. And to me, a theory of everything is not very far from being a theory of nothing. Because if you can explain anything that you find, then what's the value of the theory? It doesn't give you any added value because first you find it, and then the theory says, yes, yes, of course, a version of the theory would make it. So what did I learn? I didn't learn that the theory is right. I didn't learn that the theory, I cannot learn that the theory is wrong. And therefore it loses its scientific value, in my view, not in the view of Alan Good. He thinks that it makes the theory very robust because it can agree with anything that is being found. And you know that is the shift in the culture that I'm worried about. Mm-hmm. You see this with string theory as well. Yes. I'm not sure if Alan is a string theorist. Well, no, he's not. But um, the two cultures uh, you know, celebrate to get, uh, the, same, the same view about how physics can be done nowadays. Yeah. No, um, they both, I mean, also in the context of string theory, you know, for example, there was a suggestion that um, uh, you know some it has a landscape and and and, and its landscape the landscape of the string theory uh, accounts for some uh, ver- versions of inflation and so I asked the person that worked on that I said okay uh, so this connection that you make between the natural incarnation of string theory and uh, and inflation suppose we measure something in the cosmic microwave background about inflation and we show that the kind of inflation that you are advocating is wrong would that prove string theory wrong and that person said no Mm -hmm. string Mm -hmm. theory will always be right what it will uh, prove is the connection that i made between string theory and inflation that connection is wrong. so you see there are the the psychology is always to retreat uh to a, a place that cannot be shown wrong and uh, although it sounds very appealing and comfortable because you can maintain your um, image as uh, you know uh, being always right and, and you don't put any skin in the game, 
uh, it's not really what physics is about. This flatness that you mentioned of space-time, is this why we can say that a galaxy is moving away from us at a certain speed? And the reason why I say that is in a manifold, you can't technically, to get a bit technical, can't technically compare two different velocities unless they're brought at the same point, unless you have a horizontal or vertical subspace given by yeah, a connection okay, and so on. So, so, a so how can you compare different velocities when you're at different points in a manifold is what I'm wondering. No, so first of all, I should say that in Einstein's theory of, of gravity, you can get um, a very distant galaxy to move away from us faster than light. And that is because it's far away. So space and time can expand faster than light when you're dealing with points that are separated by a large distance. That's allowed by Einstein's theory. And that's why we lose contact with galaxies once they start moving faster than light relative to us. And so in an accelerating universe, two points that were in contact are separated eventually so that they are not in contact anymore after a while. And uh, of course, that time that it takes is the time that it takes them to reach the speed of light, basically. That's the time that they're still mm -hmm. in contact. And after that, they're not in contact, that they cannot communicate. Um, but to, to your se second uh, question, that has to do with how can we measure that the universe is flat? And that is simply just like um, you check if a piece of paper is flat, uh, you draw a triangle and you check the sum of the angles. If the sum of the angles is 180 degrees, you know that this piece of paper is flat. But if it sits on top of a ball, for example, then the sum of the angle can be bigger than 180 degrees. You can take a line from the pole to the equator, go along the equator and go back to the pole. And each of these angles would be 90 degrees. So 90 plus 90 plus 90, if you're doing it, uh, that would be 270. It's more than 180 degrees. Then you know that the surface is not flat. It's actually curved like a ball, positive. Um, so um, how do we check the sums of the angles of a triangle in the universe? Well, we just need a standard ruler. And we have that uh, in the early universe, you know, a sound wave would propagate a certain distance that we can calculate. So at a given time after the Big Bang, we know how far a sound wave can propagate. And it turns out that this is the distance where you can have correlations between the temperature of the microwave background because sound waves correlate different points in the sky where the temperature of the microwave background knows uh, about another point. Sorry, why are you using sound waves? Because sound waves require a medium. Yes, there is a medium. The matter in the universe is the medium. I mean, the, there is ordinary matter and there is light and there is dark matter. So there is matter uh, and, and the sound waves, we can calculate the speed by which they move. And so if we look at a certain time after the Big Bang, we can tell how far sound waves could propagate and that defines the standard ruler. That's the distance over which different points in the sky would be correlated with each other because they could speak via sound right. waves with each other. Yeah. And so when we look at the microwave background, we can measure the angle that that yardstick occupies mm -hmm. and we can figure out whether the sums of the angles in that triangle, the base of the triangle is the yardstick the distance that sound traveled at that time. And then the, the other sides of the triangle bring uh, go to the observer. So the observer looks at this yardstick and we can look at how, what is the angle that this yardstick occupies. And from that, we can figure out that 
whether the universe is flat or not. And this experiment was done in, in the year 2000. Uh, we already knew that the universe is flat, that they, it's the simplest geometry you can think of. That's absolutely of interesting. Of a flat yeah. space. A priori, is there a reason why it should be flat? I see it's as simple, but, and also yeah. is there a margin of error with this? Well, there should be a margin of yeah, error. Yeah, there is a margin of error right now. The precision right now is a few percent, uh, but um, uh, cosmic inflation naturally, uh, you know, in the old incarnation of it, where not everything was possible, but if you were to take the models from uh, 1980, um, uh, they would expect the universe to be flat because you take a small patch of space, you might have some curvature of space and time in that patch, but then you inflate it. And when you inflate it, you stretch it to huge dimensions. So all the curvature that you had on small scales is now being ironed out. Oh, and you can oh, think of oh, it as a cosmic iron. You basically iron out by expansion. You, you make the universe flat, the geometry flat. And it happens to be the case that the universe is flat indeed. That seems to me to be evidence for the inflation. Yes, it is. But in the original incarnation of the 1980s, uh, what happened afterwards is that the theory was uh, appended, uh, supplemented by ingredients that make it much less predictive. Uh, that it can accommodate anything. That's the part that I resist. I see, I see. Let's imagine, I think Wolfram predicts that there's a lower bound to the elementary particle masses, or at least he says he can get to that. I think you mentioned that astrophysical data can validate this. How? Well, um, Wolfram has a, a different way of looking at physics, uh, which is related to... Um, something he worked on uh, for a while. Um, it's diagrams of- uh, Hypergraphs and so on. Yeah, hypergraphs. Rules. And um, he has a group of people working with him and it's a very ambitious pro uh, uh, project. He's very bright. Um, I, I, I haven't seen yet that the effort yield predictions that we can test uh, experimentally. So far, he's trying to reproduce things we know about. Mm -hmm. And then, um, uh, he's actually uh, not far from where I live, and he's relatively local. Um, How and, many minutes uh, away I, driving? <laughs> uh, yeah, at some point, I, I hope to to have a conversation with him, uh, walking together in the woods and trying to get the latest on his uh, work. Um, but um, as far as I know, it's not yet at a point where the theory predicts new things that we can test beyond what we already know. I see, I see. So what do you think of his model? I think it's too preliminary. It's, it's nice to have people thinking independently, you know, and um, I, I very much, I, I salute his uh, effort intellectually because it's very ambitious, you know, to come up with a completely new way of looking at physics uh, and uh, his courage for do, taking on this task uh, and his intellect. I mean, he's, he's brilliant uh, when you listen to him. Have you heard of Eric Weinstein's Geometric Unity? Have you researched into it and what do you think about it? I did not uh, look uh, into it uh, in detail, no. So I cannot comment. But uh, I know that he's very bright, yeah. Do you think that innovation in physics is going to necessarily come from the outside because of these selective pressures that you mentioned in, the, in academia? Yeah, well, I think uh, what, it, what happens is that um, this pressure is, is, is reducing the efficiency of science. That, Fewer people are attempting to deviate from the beaten path. 
and especially the young people. You know, if you think about Albert Einstein, he was not deterred by pressure. He, in one year, had five seminal papers, and I very much hope that this tradition will come back, where young people will not be afraid to innovate. Uh, and uh, I think uh, even with social pressure, as long as we continue to do experiments, you know, that's the key because experiments and collecting evidence will eventually tell us that we are wrong. It takes more time if we are not open-minded. And if you look, for example, the perfect example is the Mayan uh, culture. I, I when I visited the Mexico, uh, I went to Chichen Itza uh, and the tour guide uh, was bragging about the Mayan culture and saying that the astronomers in that culture were held at a very high regard. Mm. They were considered astronomer priests, the highest level in society. And I was wondering why, and turns out that uh, politicians, uh, the rulers of the Mayans, uh, they thought that uh, by knowing the positions of planets and stars on the sky, you can forecast the future. So you can tell the outcome of a war. You can decide when to go out to a war so that it will be successful, so that you would win based mm -hmm. on the locations of uh, planets. And so they put astronomers uh, that monitor the sky, the planets. Where did they get that idea from? Just from the predictive powers of the weather and then extrapolating that? No, it's just, a, it's, um, it's sort of like horoscopes nowadays, you know, astrology. Uh, it's a natural tendency of people to believe that uh, there are powers that extend way beyond what reality is, you know, and alche alchemy was one example where people thought that their beliefs or emotions affect, you know, materials, uh, the nature of materials. Uh, so anyway, th th they thought that the, the motion of stars and planets affect human history and that's astrology fundamentally. So, but that was their belief system. And, um, and then the astronomers collected huge amounts of data over thousands of years and uh, amazing data. Uh, but it was not used for the purpose of finding uh, Newton's law of gravity. It was for the, for the political purpose of winning a war. And if you think about it from a modern perspective, uh, we now know that the, the motion of Mars or, or Venus have nothing to do with whether the Gulf War was successful or a disaster. And so we nowadays have a different view about planets and stars. And collecting all this exquisite data was not enough. If you have the wrong conception, good data is not enough. So you need to be open-minded uh, for other interpretations and to think about the data that you get in ways that are not traditional. And I bring this up because if you always think that you know the answer in advance, you might not even collect the data. That's even more dangerous. The Mayans were in a way more advanced than those people that say, we don't need data, we know the answer without it. You know, those philosophers that say, if physicists agree on something, that's enough. That's, that's much more primitive than the Mayans uh, belief system because the Mayans were collecting data about the sky at least. And, and um, you know, the, I think that's the most important thing that we can uh, maintain in terms of the integrity of science is it's reliance on evidence rather than on what people say. Um, and uh, I hope if that stays, even if uh, some ideas are ridiculed now, eventually there would be data and evidence that would 
demonstrate that they're right. And that's what happened to me, you know, in the examples that we discussed at the beginning of our conversation, you know, that eventually data came along and, and demonstrated that what I'm saying is correct. And so that that is, you know, great. I mean, uh, and by the way, it's not about me being right. It's not about us. It's about right, right, uh, right. It's about the dialogue we have with nature. I recall reading in one of your Scientific American articles about the limitations of knowing a theory of everything, and you cited Gödel. Now, I'm not sure if you were citing Gödel to say that what Gödel's incompleteness theorem has to say is something about whether or not we can ultimately find the laws that govern us, or you were using that to say, well, look, there are limitations, so let's be a bit more humble. Which yeah. one was it? Does Gödel's the theorem have the anything to do? It was the second one. I think we should be humble because uh, we will never have a complete theory of everything. Uh, logically, that was demonstrated by Gödel, but but also, you know, the scientific process is work in progress. You know, we uh, it turns out that when we discover new things, uh, we can ask more questions. It's not that we ask less questions. So uh, the the illusion that you know physics will get to an end and that would be it, you know, that was. Uh, uh, advocated a uh, hundred years ago before uh, Einstein came, uh, more than a hundred years, 120 yeah. years ago, uh, before Einstein came with special relativity and quantum mechanics was discovered and clearly physics was revolutionized. And it's being, it was said uh, in recent decades by some people. And again, I, I think they're completely misguided because, uh, you know, knowledge is just an island in an ocean of ignorance. We, we know so little. And the way to, for us to maintain the integrity of science is to stay modest and say, look, we, we don't know so much and, and it's work in progress and sometimes we may be wrong. So let's be open-minded and let's continue to collect evidence and, and, and make progress through that. Why does Gödel's incompleteness theorem have anything to do with whether or not we can learn the fundamental laws? Because um, what Gödel demonstrated is that you cannot build a, a, a self-consistent um, logical system that, uh, that, that can be proven uh, and, and, and be self-contained, so to speak. I see, I see. You're talking so, about whether or not we can prove that our theory of everything is the theory of yes. everything. So okay. there will always be some loopholes, even at the logical level. Uh, but uh, what I'm referring to in addition to that is the fact that uh, reality, you know, the, it will take us a long while before we figure out all the details of reality through experiments, in addition to the logical issues. Yeah. I recall you mentioned that science, sorry, that religion can learn from science, obviously, in the sense that we investigate nature, it tells us more about God, as well as it allows us a deeper appreciation of that nature. And this is an old view, actually, which says that if you have an interpretation of the Bible, the Christian Bible, and you find that nature contradicts that, then it's not that nature is wrong, it's that your interpretation of the Bible is wrong. Nature is always right because nature is what God made. Nature is God in some way, actually. So then I'm wondering, well, that means that religion can learn from science. Okay. Can science learn from religion? And if so, how? Well, yeah. So, um, you know, the, being a physicist is just like trying to figure out uh, what a building is is made of you know you're trying to figure out the bricks and mortar that make the building that's the fundamental laws of physics and uh, when we look at the universe we're trying to figure out what it's made of what the composition of the universe what are the laws that are governing it and uh, lo and behold we find that the, the most most of the matter in the universe is in some form that we don't know what 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 it is and 
we are not made of it. It's called dark matter. So we still have to figure it out. And, uh, it, you know, it's a puzzle and, and we're trying to figure out uh, also the laws that govern uh, the behavior of the universe. Uh, but uh, if you look at the building, there is more to it than the bricks and mortar that make the building. The, the, there is the design and there is the um, purpose of the building and there is the meaning of the building, you know, mm -hmm. and that goes beyond physics. That's the metaphysics. Now, a physicist can take a practical approach and say, I don't really care about that. I want to figure out how reality operates because that's the only tangible thing that I can later use in developing technology. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to think about things that I cannot test empirically, like, you know, uh, that involve beauty. Like, uh, is the building beautiful? Is the building serving a bigger purpose? That's, that's not of my interest. But if you are an architect, Right. Then you care mostly about that. You don't care about the bricks and mortar. Uh, as an architect, you you draw a, blue, a blueprint of a building. And, you know, in principle, the cons construction workers uh, could use different materials to, to make that. Uh, uh, of course, the materials affect the durability of the building and so forth, but, mm -hmm. but it, it, not so much the way uh, it, it appears. And and functions. And uh, so from the point of view of an architect, it's a completely different question, you know, than from the point of view of a construction worker, what the building represents. And so the way I, I, I see that is that reality, you know, has many facets to it. Uh, and uh, one of the facets is indeed what the physics is dealing with. But another facet is what the, the humanities are dealing with. And, and that includes philosophy and theology and religion. And, um, you know, as a human, uh, you are incomplete if you were not to consider all the facets. I mean, you can, of course, narrow yourself to one of them and just say, I don't care about anything else. Uh, that's fine, but that's, uh, in a way, narrow-minded, you know. It's just like uh, looking at a small piece of the, of the big picture. And I think you are not um, fully satisfied living like that. I mean, I don't think uh, uh, that ignoring the humanities is a, is a good practice. I'm reminded by Aristotle, who had a concept of causation, which unified what you're referring to. So material cause, efficient cause, formal and final. So the material is what you bricks and mortar, and then the efficient is essentially causation as we understand it as physicists. And the formal is, okay, the architecture, and then the final is the purpose of it. So you're saying we've forgotten about formal and final as physicists or as materialists in some way. But then Aristotle's yeah. causation was secular. And what I was wondering is, how can science learn from religion? And that to me doesn't, unless you want to call what Aristotle was doing as religious, where's traditional religion in the, in your answer? Well, okay, so traditional religion that uh, has a God that uh, looks over your shoulder and affects what happens to you, you know, that is, you know, that you can falsify if you, you know, in principle, bad things happen to good people and vice versa. And, uh, and, um, you know, you can uh, operate, uh, if you are using the scientific method, uh, you can test those predictions. You know, if, if there is a way by which you can forecast what will happen and you see that, that not happening, that, that mm -hmm. or, you know, if um, the biblical story of Abraham in the Bible, if Abraham uh, heard the voice of God and he had a cell phone where he had a voice memo app and he would have pressed the button, he could have recorded the voice of God. So. You know, it, in principle, it's possible to test some of these 
direct uh, interactions uh, between a divine entity and, and the human. But uh, if you believe more in the concept, the philosophical concept, like Spinoza did, where he identified God with nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, there is something to it because nature itself is not completely random. You know, it's organized. And that's quite striking that the laws of physics create some order in the universe that otherwise would not exist. And the fact that the same laws of physics that we find here on Earth apply everywhere is remarkable in my view. Uh, and, you know, discovering the laws of physics gives you a sense of awe of the type that a religious person may feel, uh, you know, because you are feeling something about nature that you uncovered that is remarkable, that applies everywhere. And it's much greater than we are because it applies everywhere. So yeah. um, you can call it a religious uh, sense, a sense of awe, but you're doing it through a scientific lens. And frankly, it's not obvious to me that there is a bigger meaning to life, uh, you know, like, the, because if you think about the meanings that we assign to life, um, they're usually confined to earth. Every, all of our ambitions are confined to earth. And within a billion years, the sun will boil off all the oceans on earth. So nothing that we care about that, that is dear to our heart will stay around for more than a billion years. So then you ask yourself, is that really a, a, a valuable meaning? Something that will go away? Okay, it will go away in a billion years, not in a, in a hundred years, but qualitatively speaking, it will go away. It's just like something that goes away in a week. I mean, it may be meaningful for a while, but then it's not anymore. So there is no absolute meaning to our existence if you think about the big picture. And, uh, you know, one thing that uh, people ask me, what is the one thing you would like to ask an alien uh, if you were to be in contact? That is the question I would like to ask. Is there a meaning to this? Or what is the, what is the meaning of this play? And as I said at the beginning, uh, we are put on the stage like actors without a script. Mm -hmm. What is the play about? I would like to know that. Do you think that because we can zoom out and say that over across a billion years, let's say that we'll no longer be here, therefore it's meaningless. Do you think that that means it's meaningless? Or do you think that means that that view that we zoom out and look at our lives across a billion years, that that is not a way that we should view ourselves? The reason I'm saying that is if we say that it's meaningless because there's a there's an end to it then why can't we just go to a Holocaust museum and say, well, their suffering didn't matter because there was an end to it anyway. Like, why can't we just apply that even more locally? I mean, there is a meaning, but it's uh, temporary, of course. And, um, and of course, it, 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 you know, it means uh, the world to us because we are also short-lived. You know, we, we live just for decades and, you know, 100 years or so. Uh, and um, so during that time, you know, that's what matters to us, uh, what happens during that time. And that's, but when I was referring to meaning, I was referring to something bigger that is, that is not going to go away, you know, that, something that stays forever. And um, that's the thing that we need to give up on, I think. Uh, and, and again, uh, staying modest, you know, I think allows you not to want too much, you know, not to think that, oh, there you know, I, I really want something that will stay forever. Perhaps we should, yeah, as you say, perhaps we should admit that everything is temporary, everything changes all the time. 
we should just adapt to changing circumstances and the meaning that we have is always short-lived and we should be happy about that you know we can enjoy good food when we eat it we can enjoy the company of friends when we have them around uh, and after a while it goes away that's okay that's that's the way life is and if we, we don't aspire for a meaning that is beyond that, that's okay. Something I was toying with was, I wonder if there's a way that the world of experience can last forever. And the reason is, let's say in general relativity, right beside a black hole, you can watch your person, your friend enter the black hole infinitely for the rest of time. Obviously they'd have to send photons back to you, but you can watch them. It's almost as if they're frozen right at the event horizon. But then for them, it's as if they passed into the black hole. Now let's imagine in reverse, right before you're about to die, your experience of life gets stretched infinitely. To everyone else, it's as if it ended. But then in just like in general relativity, you can't say that your frame of reference is the correct one, that they're, your friends is just as valid. So I'm wondering, hmm, does your experience, it's not something we can test, but I'm wondering if right before you die, does it get stretched infinitely? And that's one of the reasons why they say heaven and hell exist because, and also heaven and hell is dependent on how you live your life right now because if you live as if you're in heaven or you live properly or you live as if you're in hell and you hate everyone if you were to die you're going to feel that stretched out for the rest of your life now you won't be able to see other people but somehow phenomenologically or experientially it will get stretched and that's a huge speculative jump well that's that's an interesting thought but uh, if you ask me for my opinion i think that um, we are just our body is just like a, a computer and when you unplug it from the wall, it shuts off. All the systems shut off, and that's the experience of death. Basically, your, you know, your your cord is taken out of the outlet. Do you have any ideas as to consciousness or its origins? Is it emergent? Is consciousness emergent? Yeah, that's what I think. I think um, that we are very complex systems, and um, we are subject to a lot of uh inputs you know from our environment and that's what makes us unpredictable so when people talk about free will it's sort of the confluence of a lot of ingredients um, each of which you know can change the outcome and um, as a result we are not that predictable and of course according to quantum mechanics things are not predictable uh, there is a probabilistic uh outcome but in general you know uh, i think uh both free will and consciousness are uh, incarnations of very complex systems. So it's, it's the way that a complex system, the human appears, uh, but it doesn't mean that the building blocks of making a human are anything different than, you know, the physical elements that we know about. You just put them together in some way and you get phenomena like consciousness, uh, which by which we mean that the, the, the system itself recognizes that it exists uh, and uh, acts based on the feedback that it gets from reality. Um, but in principle, I can imagine us constructing entities that will behave the same way in the future. You know, robots that are sufficiently advanced with AI and so forth. I don't see a qualitative uh, difference uh, between the human body and and the materials that, that it's made of. It's just that there are, the materials are organized in a way that gives the human body special qualities and uh, abilities. Uh, but when we die, it's just like taking the computer cord out of the outlet.
I'm sure you've heard of the hard problem of consciousness. That is, how can we get experience from what's fundamentally not experiencing? Do you have any ideas as to that? You mentioned, well, when you have a feedback, when you have a system looking at itself, but then that's self-consciousness. I'm just referring to experience in and of itself. Yeah, because the experience is being sensed by our body. And, you know, our, our body can play tricks on us and can give us senses that do not really exist outside of the body and they are just self-created. Uh, so you can, you can imagine phenomena like that, um, but it's all related to physical processes that are happening. Do you believe that there are wormholes or stable wormholes? Possibly uh, aliens are using them? No, I, at, at the moment, um, you know, there are people suggesting how to construct wormholes, how to uh, perhaps build time machines. and But all of these suggestions, again, um, are spe highly speculative because we don't have a quantum mechanical theory of gravity. And without it, um, you know, these ideas may not hold water, you know. So uh, let's put it this way. We have no way of designing an engineering project to build either a time machine or a wormhole. The current knowledge is very sketchy. And the proposal uh, that we have in various papers are all uh, very speculative. As for the fine tuning of the universe, do you have any inklings as to why it is the way that it is? Do you take Lee Smolin's evolutionary black hole model? No, um, I, you know, I think that the conditions we have in the universe were dictated by how it started, uh, you know, around the Big Bang. And so, you know, just like cosmic inflation tries to explain various facts and uh, once we have a quantum theory of gravity, we'll be figure out where the universe came from. You know, what is the womb that the umbilical cord of the universe was connected to? And that would explain to us why it has the properties that it has. So rather than guess it, I would rather go to that womb that created the universe and ask what are the reasons that we have the conditions we have. So you believe that we can derive the fundamental constants in some way? Poten potentially, yeah. If we figure out uh, what happened uh, before the Big Bang using a quantum theory of gravity, perhaps uh, once again, what we find in the universe will be emerging out of those conditions, early conditions and the theory and the, uh, you know, the unifying theory, uh, which we don't have at the moment. Before I get to audience questions, the last question I have, well, two, I want to know what you think is the difference between wisdom and intelligence. And then I wanted to know what you thought of Wigner's friend's, Wigner's friend's thought experiment or the thought experiment of Wigner's friend, I'm sure you've heard of it, about the collapse of the wave function. Yeah, so uh, first with respect to intelligence and, and wisdom, the, there is a very uh, uh, big difference between them. Wisdom uh, is the ability to, to identify the essential uh, elements uh, necessary to, to answer questions and, and learn about, about the world. Um, so it, it's a way of improving the efficiency of us figuring out uh, the truth, you know, and someone uh, that is wise gives you a shortcut. Uh, uh, you can be very intelligent and just examine all the exits from the highway. Uh, many of them would lead you into bad neighborhoods. Uh, but if you are wise, you will try to figure out which exit is the right one. And um, uh, so, so uh, intelligence may be a, a, an essential skill uh, in pursuing science uh, and you can become a world expert in a particular niche 
just like taking an exit from the highway and that exit you can become the world expert uh, but it's not necessarily the niche that matters the most and if you are wise you can figure out which niche matters the most if you're wise how do you determine which one matters which one is the right one i imagine that depends on the goal but then i'm wondering well how do you decide on the goal you have just uh, what allows you to survive you have to decide about the guiding principles first so uh, for example uh, to some people what matters the most are subjects of um, relevance to society you know if it has an impact on society because after all we live in a society you know and whether we address um, how many extra dimensions exist or whether we address uh, how to find a vaccine to COVID-19 or um, you know these are two different questions with very different uh, impacts on society um, so you might use that when you evaluate what you want to do if you want to help people then you work on some questions that matter to them now it doesn't mean that they all have to be medical they could be questions that people care about right right so um in that way uh, since the public is funding science you are paying respect to the public if on the other hand you ask yourself how many angels can sit on hear that sound that's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. The tip of a pin, and you get funded by the public. And then you say, I don't care what the public says, and I don't care if I have experiments to test my ideas then that's a betrayal of the trust that the society has in academia. And that is a good reason for the public to say that uh, you know, academia is part of the elite because, because it's divorcing itself from the interests of the public. So being wise is attending to the interests of those who fund you. And that's an example. Mm-hmm. Okay, what about if there's no capitalism, there's no funding? Well, sorry, in socialism, you're also funded. There's no <laughs> money. We're hunt, hunter-gatherers. Can you be wise? Yeah, if you're a hunter, and you still have a purpose, right? You're trying to hunt. 
So you're so for that purpose, you develop tools that are relevant. So instead of the relevance being to society, to the people that fund you, here the relevance is to your objectives. So I guess, you know, Avi, sorry, what I'm trying to get at is how do you know which goals? You're, you're presuming a goal already. So what I'm right. wondering is how do you determine which goal you should follow? Oh, okay. I think, well, the way I determine is uh, personally, that doesn't mean that everyone should operate this way, but I, I um, pay attention to the goals that are most important, you know, that, that, are, uh, that will make the biggest difference. You see, uh, you can always work on, on something in the periphery that makes very little difference to anyone. And uh, nobody would bother you and you will be happy. You'll earn your living, you'll go to work, you will smile and people will smile at you and that's it. Mm -hmm. But the question is, does it matter to anyone? or to yourself? Do you feel, will you feel at the age of 90 that you actually fulfilled your uh, life uh, interests? And the answer may be no, you should have been more daring, more risk-taking, more willing to embark on things that are difficult, that will take a while to figure out, but matter more. So I look at myself at that stage, at, you know, at a late age and ask, what would I advise myself now to do that would matter, that will make a difference? And that's what I do. Okay, well, let's get to some audience questions. Steve Scully here says, is it possible that the universe is infinite, that there is no end to how large or small objects in the universe can be relative to one another? And that if the overall system is to be comprehensible, it is only by us recognizing how all of these apparently separate and distinct different systems actually share the same underlying mechanics. Yes. I'll read the question. You understood the question? No, I, yeah, I understood. The, okay. Well, most of the, the answer to most of the question is yes. It's uh, quite possible that uh, in each direction, you know, it's an infinite series of oh, okay. sizes and scales and... Uh, but to me, the most interesting part of the question is, uh, will the laws of physics apply everywhere the same way? Mm -hmm. Or will you have the... And um, so far, the amazing thing is that in the region that we can see, that we can observe, uh, it appears like the laws of physics apply everywhere the same way. And that, that's remarkable, but uh, it may, it's not guaranteed by any means. And of hmm. course, people are searching for deviations, uh, because if you find a deviation, you get an overprint. Right, right. That brings me to a question that I have for you, but it's more for an experimentalist. Do you always need a theory to interpret the data, or can you just interpret the data without a theory? So for example, collecting astronomical data, we're assuming that we're at no special place in the universe and that the laws are pretty much the same throughout time. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So can you interpret the data without a theory? Can you even make sense of the data without a theory? I don't think so. I think uh, you always have to have something in the back of your mind because otherwise the data is not telling you anything. Uh, you have to put it in, in a context. So just to give you an example, uh, uh, when I was a postdoc, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, astrophysical uh, journals, uh, used to come in print. It was not on the internet. And um, so I went to the library at, at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton and I saw that uh, before the 1980s, there were uh, photographs published in print 
where you can see giant arcs of light surrounding clusters of galaxies and people just ignore them the data was there it was it was printed you know in images that were put on paper in papers and nobody asked anything about those arcs why are there arcs you know like lightning strikes between galaxies like sparks almost well they look like arcs and uh, then in the 1980s the subject of gravitational lensing uh, became popular and then people uh, explained those arcs as focusing of light by the force of gravity you know so you have a cluster of galaxies that acts on light from a background source behind it let's say a galaxy sits far away behind the cluster and then the light that comes from that galaxy is being gravitationally bent and focused at the observer and you end up with what is called an Einstein ring. Einstein already thought that this could happen in 1940. Uh, so you can get a giant arc uh, of a background source that is part of sort of a ring uh, of uh, light that comes from gravitational lensing. And once they realized that, they said, oh, that, that's a good explanation for those arcs. But the arcs existed in the literature before, and people just didn't think about it in that context. So you can have data, it's just without a sense of what the data mean, may mean, you might actually not, not pay attention to it. Barfyman362 asks, do you still learn math and physics in the same way you did as you were when you were younger? And if not, how has aging and experience changed your learning process? Right. So. Um, I was always, uh, I'm not a good example because uh, from a young age, I was always uh, most interested in ideas and uh, th then in uh, the, uh, the mathematical techniques that are used to, to uh, uh, perfect them or, or demonstrate them. Uh, and so um, in that sense, uh, I'm actually more efficient now than I was because um, you know, I'm, I, I, I know the field much better. And uh, so if I were to meet a young version of myself, I, I could teach myself quite a bit. Uh, so I feel that I'm much stronger now than I was at a younger age, uh, because I, I don't, I'm, I don't waste as much time in directions that would not prove uh, useful, fruitful. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, the techniques, um, it's true that after a certain age, you stop um, learning new techniques, most people. Uh, and so you, you continue to use what you've learned um, during your studies in, at, you know, during your PhD, and you continue to use that. Uh, but you use it on, on subjects that are new. Um, very few people uh, do learn new techniques and, and by that, rejuvenate their skills uh, people do that but since i was always about ideas uh, about thinking on things that other people do not think about then um, the techniques were not particularly important for me and i remember when i uh, came as a postdoc i was asked uh, uh, what kind of computer skills you have and i said i very minimal uh, during my phd i just use whatever i needed in order to solve uh, the differential equations that I had, I didn't uh, master anything beyond that. And the person who hired me was stunned. He said, how, how come you didn't learn, uh, you know? And 
um, I should say that I had a, very, a rather productive career, even though I didn't learn much more computer skills uh, since then, even. So it's possible. Still? To, yeah, because a lot of people have the technical skills, but they lack um, the, the imagination or the, the ideas. Mm -hmm. So you play more in the realm of concepts and ideas and how they relate than you do yeah. with the mathematical pedantry? Yeah, so it's sort of like, uh, you know, sketching a blueprint of a, a building uh, rather than uh, building it. So then who does the mathematical work? You just oh, give that to a graduate yeah, student? Yeah, lot, yeah, students, postdocs, a lot of people that I collaborate with. Mm -hmm. And with regard to learning new techniques and constantly staying updated, you said that some people do. But right. generally, let's say past the age of 30 or 40, I don't know which, so I'm asking you, oh, what no, time do you no, stop I, doing I mean, it? And it's, it's not this, I know of people that are in their 50s that are learning machine learning now and, you know, AI. And uh, so I, you know, it really is a matter of uh, uh, people that enjoy the, the, you know, the technical gymnastics. And there are some people that enjoy that and they're, they're not, not many, but uh, mm -hmm. I mean, they're a minority. Do you think that instead of focusing on artificial intelligence, like you mentioned, we should focus on wisdom, so artificial wisdom, so awe <laughs> instead of AI, do you think that that's something we should be focusing on? Or do you see like, how the heck would we even start that project? Oh, I do think that uh, it's inter an inter a very interesting idea. I, I haven't thought about it before, but um, yeah, you can think about designing a system that will be wise, more efficient, basically, uh, rather, right. than go, rather than go and explore all possibilities. Brian Keating asks, our mutual friend, Brian Keating, and by the way, for those listening, Brian Keating, a link to his YouTube channel will be below. He said, I'd love to know what his daily routine is. So that is you and whether you've expected and even regret the backlash to your new fame. So daily routine and the backlash and how uh, you feel about it. Yeah. Well, um, every, since the pandemic started, um, since uh, it's, it's more than a year now, uh, every morning at 5 a.m. Uh, I, I go out and jog in the company of uh, birds, ducks and rabbits and wild turkeys. They are, they are very loud. I, I see the same wild turkeys uh, for a year now uh, along my path. What city are you in? I'm uh, on a, in a suburb near Boston. Okay, and, okay. Um, so it's cold. Oh yeah, I go out in any weather, whether it snows, whether it rains, uh, uh, whether it's freezing. I, you know, I. It's just an aspect of nature that I enjoy. I enjoy going. I, I enjoy very much being in the company of nature rather than, and I don't regard people or my colleagues in particular as part of nature because nature is always gracious. You know, you always learn something. It's. Uh, I always enjoy nature. I grew up on a farm. And, and, so that the, my day starts at 5 a.m. And I should say over the, the months of um, January, February, and half of March, uh, I would have back-to-back -back interviews from 8 a.m. until 7 p.m. There were about 450 of them altogether. It was a huge, huge, uh, exhausting uh, marathon that I had to be engaged in just because of the interest in my book. But that's very un. Uh, untypical because by now it sort of is fading away. I mean, the book is already out for two months now. Um, and um, uh, by now I'm getting back to my regular routine, which is writing papers and, and commentaries. So I should say the past 12 months were the most productive in my scientific career because um, I didn't have to drive to work. I, I didn't have people uh, 
getting into my office uninvited. Uh, I didn't have the administrative um, uh, distractions that I usually have. And so I could focus on creative work. And I wrote of the order of uh, 46 scientific papers and uh, 52 um, um, commentaries, mostly in Scientific American. And then a couple of books. Uh, one of them is the one that was published two months ago. And there is another one, a textbook coming out uh, at the end of June about life in the cosmos. So it has been a very productive time. And, you know, frankly, I can continue like that, um, you know, for the next, for the next few years uh, uh, without a problem. The, uh, there is always something interesting to work on. Um, and uh, I enjoy the creative work. For, I used to do leadership positions just as a service to the community because at some point I re realized that other people are not doing their job properly when they are leading a department or doing something else, chairing a committee. So I thought, you know, I should do it just to make sure that things are done according to the, 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 the proper guiding principles. What were they doing and what did you do that corrected it? Many times they would uh, state uh, that, you know, the, the right ideas, but they would not really ac accomplish them in practice. And uh, that was a puzzle to me because I could always see what needs to be done, you know, in order Do you to mind giving a specific example? No, because that, that was, of, that will offend some people. Um, okay, you can be but, vague. Of, sorry, give an example. But, uh, you can just change it because I don't understand what you mean by. Well, what I mean is, um, you know, when, like for example, when I became department chair in 2011, I, I continued three terms. Uh, that, that was the longest service in the history of the department. I was the longest serving department chair, um, and um, one thing from the beginning was that I was always straightforward with people. I would tell them. The situation as is right i never manipulate people i never hide things from them and uh, you might think that that's a negative uh, politically because very often in politics you have to maneuver in a way that would people would not know exactly what is going on but i found it to be a, a, a I, I didn't care so much because i said you know if if i give up on my service i will go back to to research and i'll be happy at that i'm doing the service uh, you know, just in order to serve the community. And uh, so I was straightforward and it turned out to be a, a great uh, asset because people never suspected me doing things behind their back and they always trusted my dealings with things. And, and then I, I put an important item to promote um, uh, minorities and women in the department. And, you know, I hired in that direction and there was not much resistance uh, from my colleagues to that. And uh, so I, you know, I felt that I did accomplish something in nine years. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, transparency, uh, allowing people from underprivileged uh, circumstances to uh, have uh, the proper training so that they can become leaders. You know, these are the kinds of principles that I felt strongly about and I tried to promote and that previously I didn't feel were promoted enough. Uh, but now, you know, that I finished my third term and uh, just, um, you know, in July 2020, um, then uh, I can go back to doing creative work. And that's what I enjoy the most. You wrote this book while you were the chair? The book was, yes, um, that's right. Yes. Mm -hmm. You were a productive man. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm, I'm a no-nonsense kind of person in the sense that, um, you know, when I have a task, I, I work on it and uh, um, I work most of the day. How do you balance that with 
spending time with your wife and I'm not sure if you have kids, but whatever yeah. your personal life. I have two daughters. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, uh, I do spend time with them, but, but one of them is 15, the other one is 19. And um, they are sort of independent by now, the, the two daughters. I'm surrounded by uh, three wonderful women that were the muses for my book. Uh, and uh, they support me in a lot of different ways, provide the right balance for my life. So I'm sort of, um, at this point in my life, I'm self-sustained and can do creative work. You know, that's the, the, the best you can hope for, that uh, you don't depend on other people uh, that have agendas that are not necessarily aligned with your principles. Um, so that, that's a good place to be in. And I'm very happy to be in that place. When you were doing podcasts for 11 hours a day, back a couple months ago, including now even, why do you say that you had to do it? Your publisher pushed you to do it or you wanted no, to? No, no. I felt that it's a platform that allows me to communicate what I believe in to the public. Uh, had nothing to do. Some people argue that maybe I'm doing it uh, to sell my book. I told my, my publicist that it's not for that purpose, that I'm doing it to convey a message. The publicist was saying, good job, Avi. And I said... I'm not trying to sell my book even. So when the book became a bestseller, that was not my objective at all. I, I wouldn't care less if it, you know, if it sold just a, a few hundred copies and that's it. And what I would like to communicate is a message to the public and I communicate it through my book and through the, the, these appearances. And, and it got um, huge attention from, from the public, I should say, you know, like there was um, a, a Vice uh, video that, uh, received uh, one and a half million views within a, a week and a half. And, uh, you know, there, there was, uh, uh, of course, the interviews with uh, Joe Rogan and and, and, um, uh, uh, and some other people got a huge um, uh, amount of uh, attention. So, so in that sense, I, I did bring my message to the public. Um, mm. And that's what I wanted. And uh, now I can move on and and uh, you know, write additional books. Do the views make you feel happy? Do you feel giddy? Do you share the news with your wife? Like, look, this got a million views or do you read the comments? How do you view your own appearances? Um, I, I let the publicist look into that. Um, and, and there were of course other opportunities that were opened up um, that involve uh, uh, documentaries or, or films. And uh, there were of other 25 uh, filmmakers and producers that uh, approached us uh, as a result wow. of this. Uh, but um, we should see if anything comes out. Congratulations. That's not easy. As a filmmaker, I know that that's not a, <laughs> that's not something to be sneezed at. So 20 years ago, 2001, you were married and your wife said, don't go on social media. How the heck does she know about social media in 2001? <laughs> yeah, because, well, back then, um, there were some versions of it. And um, uh, MySpace, I'm assuming. And yeah, yeah, MySpace. I, I forgot. But, uh, you know, I, usually I do not deviate if I agree to something. And I maintain the course. And when Facebook appeared and Twitter and so forth, I kept my promise to her and she in just knew how attractive you were and how much girls would be messaging you. It wasn't about keeping you. <laughs> that, that's a, that's an interesting insight. I, I wouldn't, uh, yeah, perhaps she was thinking about that. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly why, but um, I'm grateful. It worked that out. 
It worked. It out. worked out in the sense that it it kept me honest and uh, independent of others. Okay, Barfy Man again. His also his name is also Ryan Collins. He said, "Can you ask him about virtual black holes and spin network evolution? How might a superposition of spin network evolutions (bracket spin foams) fluctuate?" Um. Well, we so again the the structure of space and time, you know, is a matter of uh, the the uh, unified theory of quantum gravity, which we don't have at the moment. So, uh, John Wheeler was a physicist who thought about the space-time foam as um, the way that space and time appear on very tiny scales. That's not the way that string theory thinks of it right now, and um, there are all these extra dimensions and. Uh, so I would say the verdict is still out as to what's going on uh, with space and time. And um, let's just keep an open mind. Jeff B says, number one, have they confirmed yet if BLC1 narrow band radio signal detected in December 2020 by the Parkes Radio Telescope, hopefully you know about this, came from Proxima Centauri or was it just Earth-based local interference? Uh, that's an excellent question, and uh, most likely it's Earth-based. Uh, the reason I say that is because the frequency was very steady, didn't really drift much, and it was a very narrow band of frequencies that was detected. And um, if it came, if it were to come from a habitable uh, planet around Proxima Centauri, then you would see some drift in the frequency because of the motion of that planet, well beyond the, the limits. Uh, but of course, it could have come from a planet not in the habitable zone. Um, based on the, the fact that it was uh, one telescope in Australia, I think we should be very suspicious because the same telescope reported the fast radio burst, repeating fast radio burst uh, a few years ago that ended up being the, uh, they found that it comes only during lunchtime and uh, then realized that it's uh, the door of a uh, uh, microwave oven that was opened prematurely by right, right. person in the that funny. So uh, I would say there is a, a like, high likelihood that um, it's, it's local. Um, and the only way to find out is to have um, another observatory at a different location finding the same source. So we really need the confirmation before we assume that it is uh, associated with Proxima Centauri. Rabbit Skywalker says, I really would like to hear his opinion about the claims from former Israeli director of the space program, Ham Ashed, brought forward. You must have heard about it. He must have heard about it, referring to you. And I wonder what Avi thinks about the story. Yeah, so my reply to that is he didn't really provide any evidence. And that goes back to what we discussed before, that uh, if you don't have a document supporting uh, your claim or, or some other type of evidence, then uh, to me, it sounds like no journalist should cover that story because otherwise you create a lot of noise in the system without much signal. About there being evidence, there's someone named Kevin Knuth, I don't, or Kevin Knuth. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a physicist from Albany. You've yeah. heard of him? Yes, definitely. Okay. Well, I'm speaking to him in a few hours, just for the people listening too. I'm speaking to him in a few hours. He says that he's analyzed some of the data of the UFOs or UAPs, I believe they're called now, and he has showed that through analysis, the amount of acceleration is incomparable to anything that we can produce, and it's, well, I guess you can take that as evidence. 
Well, what do you think about that? Have you seen that paper of his? So anything to do with uh, unidentified flying objects or aerial phenomena, my take on those uh, is simple, that um, we should uh, deploy state-of-the-art instruments, uh, cameras or uh, audio sensors in the same locations and try to collect data, just like a scientific experiment, rather than rely on instruments that were not optimized for that purpose, that you know pilots have access to. And, uh, or rely on reports that came from many years ago that we cannot really check. Um, and so I think that uh, all the UFO and UAP supporters should fund a scientific mission uh, experiment to, to monitor the Earth. Yeah, monitor those locations if you think that they are. And basically, if we see anything unusual, it will be documented in a scientifically credible way rather than rely on those uh, unoptimized uh, reports that, you know, the images are always fuzzy. It could be something in the instrument. It could be something else in the sky uh, that is an optical illusion. Could be many things. So um, I would highly recommend doing a scientific, credible scientific experiment. And, you know, it shouldn't be too expensive and it will save us uh, a lot of time instead of discussing it. Let's just let, we should let the evidence uh, dictate yes of course of course i know you got to go how do you, but how can we do that because i imagine that the ufos are so small and they're so sporadic that to monitor the entire earth is not cheap so how well, can you, conceivably that be done you don't need the entire earth you can just do it uh, in the spots where uh, detections were reported and um, nowadays we have technologies that didn't exist decades ago and uh we should uh, you know it's it, it should not be too expensive it, i'm sure that at the level of tens of millions of dollars, uh, one can do a state-of-the-art experiment uh, to check if there is anything unusual. If we don't see anything unusual, then uh, it must mean that um, these were artifacts of the instruments or some illusions. Amjad Hussein had a couple questions that I wasn't able to get to during the interview, but I emailed Avi directly. And here's the exchange. Professor Avi, are there aliens on Earth living, sharing the planet with us? in a non-electromagnetic realm, dimension, consciousness, like dark matter, energy, where we don't know their existence. And then he had another question, number two, do fundamental particles in nature have proto-consciousness, meaning that an electron feels its own intrinsic state of charge, spin, etc. Does consciousness equal existence? Avi replied saying the answers to both questions are no, as far as we know scientifically. Avi, you gotta go. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was a pleasure to, to answer all these questions. And they were, they were excellent, excellent questions, all of them. I enjoyed it very much.